Welcome to Toby Head Oaks Who's Round, and once more, it's time to paint it black. Now, you, were, you weren't butch when I first met you. No, you were, that's... You were this top-hatted harlequin, which yeah, I yeah. thought was a great look for you, by the way. Yeah, it was. I uh, remember those days. But And this is, this is something I want to allude to that's slightly less serious. We'll come back to yeah. you. Is that when you were talking about being late for the audition and that sort of thing, you are somebody in the 20-odd years that I've known you around whom chaos seems to swirl. Yes. So if you, were, if you were knighted Queen of England yes. tomorrow, I can guarantee the metal of the crown would probably give your skin some sort of bad reaction. Absolutely. You'd probably trip over on your way to get knighted. Yeah. Uh, and you probably realise that the, that the person investing you, you called an idiot at a disco in 1985. Yeah, yeah. What, all of those what, what is this? What is this about <laughs> you, Beth, that even when things are going well for you... Yeah. You, your life somehow seems to be chaotic. It's always chaotic, and it always has been, and I don't even really know what it is. I mean, I know that I've got ADHD. I know that I'm on the autism spectrum. Um, these are all things that are separate to all of those other things. Like, I, I often feel like I'm taking up too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what, I've got all of these things wrong with me. Oh, God, right, okay. Um, yeah, it, it's... Yeah, I don't... I honestly don't know what it is that does that, but it does. I am... Um, my life is never boring. I wish it was, occasionally. Mm. Um, I wish I wish things would calm down every now and again. I wish things didn't always just end up being like the most chaotic, most ridiculous. But you know that's that's why I'm a comedian. It's the chaos follows me wherever I am, whatever I do. Um, I've I, and I'm currently writing a memoir, and I've gone through it, and just suddenly going, oh well, these things happened. These bizarre things happened. Like everywhere I went, I was one of the last people to see Jill Dando alive. Um, I, oh, were you? Yes, I was. I worked in Snappy Snaps in Fulham, and she came in to get some uh, photographs developed on the morning that she was shot. Um, little things like that happen. It's the, like these bizarre things that just yeah. So when you say stuff like that, like I was supposed to, that, um, that's my favourite. Who's round anecdotes <laughs> of the lot? That's beaten Milo Clancy's teapot. That's that's my favourite. One of my favourite things. One of I mean, it was a horrible thing that happened, and it was horrible. Like it was horrible at the time. I remember being like absolutely terrified by it. Partly because my bus went past the end of our road every day, Crikey. but also the police came in to talk to us, and and every day on the bus on the way home, the police would come in. With a photograph of the man who they suspected was was the killer. well, not a photograph, a photo fit, which looked exactly like Alistair Campbell. Um, well, which, you heard it here first, which, which I told them at the time. They went, "Have you seen this man before?" And I went, "Yes, I know exactly who that is." And they went, "Who is that?" I said, "It's Alistair Campbell. <laughs> it's, it's Labour's press secretary." And they went, "Oh." Right. And then they had a look. Yeah, and a couple of days later, I saw one of the police officers. And went, "Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It did look a lot like him." <laughs> but they were asking. They were. They, they got on the bus and said, "Have you seen?" Has anybody, has anybody seen a man who is uh, about five foot ten, with uh, short dark hair, wearing a suit and carrying a mobile phone? <laughs> it's like that is your best description, is it? You, <laughs> I don't think you're going to find him. Uh, yeah, that's what you're asking in Fulham, is it? Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was odd. But yeah, like like I say, I I tend to. I don't. Yeah, I don't even know what it is that I. I don't know whether it's that I attract it or that I just happen to be in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time but but yeah you're absolutely right chaos does does follow me everywhere that I go and okay you're writing your memoir so you're having to be you know yeah. you're having to sort of take stock of your life I'm interested in this because I've known you for 20 years yeah and but something happened to you as a comedian you always had something 
but it, it never you never were quite there and I, yeah. th- and I think you know yeah, I'm not yeah, no, telling absolutely. you anything you don't know and I, I feel I can be uh, candid with you because yeah. we're mates yeah um, you always I always felt you never quite delivered what you promised yeah and you're always somebody who looked the part talked the part everything was there but then on stage and even a club like Excess Malarkey which yeah. is really nice you cough and you go, oh, why did that not quite... Why was that not quite the gig that you should have done? Yeah. And you were sort of languishing in paid 15-dom. Yeah, for, yeah. for listeners, for that, that means you get 30 quid for doing 15 minutes. And the idea yeah. is you do a couple of them well and you get promoted to main sport. You do that well, you, you become a headline. Now, I wouldn't hesitate to have you close yeah. the comedy store. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if that were in my gift, but you certainly. Excellent. Well, it's in it's in Simon's gift, and he does. Well, well there we go. <laughs> and you certainly would you you would be a, you have been a headliner at Excess Malarkey, yeah. and you know you uh, and you hold your head equally high as as the company that you keep, who are all you know the t- the top acts in the country. Yeah. So, but it to me so to me it seemed to happen quite quick. Having having been in that sort of malaise yeah. or, 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 or not it seemed to suddenly happen where suddenly instead of then you move very 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 slowly and then you moved really quickly yeah 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 and I've and yeah that has absolutely happened I think I was because I've been thinking about this over the last week because it's for the first time I've gigged with some very brand new comedians who've actually been of the kind who ask you questions rather than sit in a green room, don't recognise you, and then tell you that you need more stage time. <laughs> uh, which is what normally happens. You get somebody who's... They've, they've done, like, four gigs, and they sit in there, and because they haven't seen you on television or they don't recognise you from television, they, uh, they go, do you, know what you, do you know what you really need to do? do you need? They start telling you how to do your job because they've... It's the Dunning-Kruger effect, isn't it? They've, they've started off and they don't know what they don't know, and then they've got a little bit of knowledge, and they suddenly think that they know a lot more than they actually know. Yeah. They don't know enough yet to know that they don't have the skills to... To know that they don't know. <laughs> yes. This is the problem. Yes. They don't know enough to know that they don't know. Um, and so they tell you things. And so I've been, I've, I was sat with a couple of comedians last week and just chatting about this. And it's, it's, so the whole weekend I've actually been thinking about this and thinking about what happened. And the first two years I wanted to be a comedian. I wanted to do something. I wanted to just make a big show. I wanted to say to the world, here I am. This is what I do. And so a lot of it was, it was all show with no content. And on top of that, um, I did a thing that a lot of comedians do when they start out, which is to mistake being shocking for being funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I mistook shock for... I really, really wanted to get better and I really wanted to do this as a career. The first time I ever managed to get a laugh out of an audience, it was the best feeling I'd ever had in my life and I went, that is something that I want to do and I think if I can manage to do this with one joke, I'm sure I can manage to build up to get a 20 and, and be able to do this everywhere. That's what I want to do. And the first two years, I kept mistaking being being shocking for being funny. So I said some horrific things on stage that were occasionally funny by accident, more so than by design. And then after about two years of that, I remember being at a house party with you and a couple of other comics. Um, I think it was at Jason Cook's old house. Oh, yeah. Just just around the corner from here. Yeah. Um, well, it was a house full of comedians and they had a big party and... and I think that lasted for about two or three days that I was there. Yeah. But it was one of those ones that went on forever. <laughs> sort of the days. Yeah, and I can remember chatting with some people about a comedian who I really didn't like, <laughs> an open spot who I really didn't like, who I found, who just really annoyed me. And I realised at the time it was partly because I had the same attitude that the audience were the enemy, the audience were the people who I was going out. And Mike Wilmot, the fantastic Canadian comedian, once said to me, you can always tell when a comedian's going to be terrible because they're stood backstage shadow boxing before they go on. 
Because that is the wrong energy to have when you're going out to see an audience. <laughs> that is the wrong energy to have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're going out to see an audience and you're ready to fight them, then they are not going to enjoy what you do. And so, yeah, so going out and insulting an audience and, and, and then walking back and going, no idea why they hated me. Yeah, yeah. Um, is the wrong thing to have. And, and so I, I changed my attitude towards an audience. I was like, right, okay, I want to do... I, I, I want to be able to make them like me. I want to be able to earn the money that I should be earning from doing that. So... I sort of changed the attitude, and that was about two years in. Um, and the problem that I then had, first of all, was that I was I had terrible stage fright, which I got over after about four years. Um, and then well, that was when I was languishing, sort of like fifteen minute territory for a long time after that. And then I, um, it took me a long time, sort of honing and getting a paid twenty that I knew would work everywhere. Yeah wasn't necessarily the best paid 20, but it was a 20 that I knew I could work get to work everywhere. And I started doing sort of like middle spots at the bad, badly paid weekend gigs. So I'd got like £100 to do a 20-minute spot at a gig somewhere that no one else wanted to do because they couldn't double it with anywhere and it didn't pay enough for them to, yeah. earn, to earn enough money for that weekend. And that was... And I sort of stayed there for quite a long time. Um, and I, And the reason for that, I think, was because I spent a long time trying to write comedy thinking what will an audience find funny and it I think it took me about eight years to eight or nine years to go well actually it took me longer than that it took me about 12 years to to go it doesn't matter what they find funny because I'm a comedian my job is to make people laugh my job isn't to persuade people to laugh (laughs) my job isn't to lead people into the area where laughs might be and hope that they find them my job is to make them laugh and if some if if I think something's funny, it's funny because I'm a comedian. And and if they're not laughing, it's because I haven't made it palatable to them. I haven't presented it in a way that, that gets them to do it. And I learned that. But even so, I had this 20 that was what was keeping the roof above my head, which was what was doing anything else. So I just didn't change a word of that. And again, chatting with Mike Wilmot. And he said I did the exact same thing. And to, he said from the, about 8 to 14 years into my stand-up career, I had this 120 that I didn't change the words of and was absolutely terrified if I did because it might mean I'd lose my house or, or you know because I'm at the stage where I've got this 20 which is okay but it's it's just okay I'm just hanging on to these gigs by the skin of my teeth and if I do something which makes it go that makes the gig go south then they might not book me back and I can't afford not to be booked back so it's suddenly becomes so much more important because you can't put anything new in in case it does go bad um and then I just went do you know what actually screw it just let's do that let's start adding new stuff let's let's do some new stuff let's let's do that and and the television work suddenly gave me that freedom to go actually i don't have to care what an audience thinks mm. about me i don't have to worry about that because if i don't get because you said you know you were quite shocking you are still now quite shocking but it just seems you you seem more because you seem more comfortable yeah we're more comfortable with you being it yes exactly and and i've learned how to do that i've learned how to make an audience go with that stuff and it's about taking them slowly out of their comfort zone and then bringing them back that's why right now my set is sort of 50% really broad observational stuff that applies to everybody and 50% really specific stuff that no one else could possibly talk about that no one else could do in their voice Um, because that's the stuff that I wanted that's the stuff that I've always wanted to do and that's surely what makes the most interesting comedians is that you can't imagine anybody else doing that yeah absolutely and it stood me in good stead because it's it's meant that very few people have ever been able to steal jokes off me yeah (laughs) (laughs) yes see see so see me on stage (laughs) as a a trans uh, as as a butch lesbian myself um, 
it's well okay well um i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna slightly overrun um because um there are things that only you can answer that uh, uh, nobody else in Who's Round can, because you are also the first trans person to be done for Who's Round. I'm not counting yes. Hayley from Coronation Street. <laughs> uh, who ha- I show, always follow her. She was the first person to do it in this house. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Oh. Yes, I'm She's sorry. Always beat- I knew there was somebody. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so, um, because it is an issue du jour, and I'm sorry to talk yeah, about no, no, you as an issue, as an issue yeah. when, when I, but I hope we've, we've had the human side of things first, but it would be neglectful of me, I think, yeah. not to perhaps throw some of the things about you that reasonable people might read about the issue and go, oh, well, actually, that's a fair point. And, and, and I have to say, the reason I'm being mealy-mouthed and sort of catching this in a very long introduction before I do it is because I have to be careful, because these things have lost a lot of nuance in the way that they are discussed publicly, I would argue, from both sides, and that's not helping anybody. Is that fair to say? I I think the problem is that a lot of people treat it as a thought experiment. They don't ever treat it as dealing dealing with real people, with -hmm. with a group of people who are currently struggling quite a lot, who have, um, every single day, there's stories in the newspaper. Yeah. Every single day, there's uh, there's attack pieces. There are people who don't want things to do with you. What's happened in the last ten years is that because of social media, a lot of marginalised groups have been able to communicate with each other for the first time properly, and realise that we're not really alone. That there's a lot of people out there. You know, me growing up in in the countryside, the Lancashire countryside, in the eighties and nineties, thinking that I was absolutely alone in the world, that there was no one else like me, that maybe there were 5,000 people like me in the world. Um, to then discover that, no, there aren't, there's lots, there's lots of us, and we can talk to each other, and we can, we can talk about our experience, we can find out what our shared experiences are, and we can find out the ways, that, that things that we've gone, actually, do you know what, we shouldn't have accepted being treated like that by this person for this reason. Um, has meant that it's emboldened us to be able to say, actually, do you know what, things need to change. Because a lot of us are, a lot of us are unemployed and underemployed. A lot of us find difficulty getting housing. Um, there are far more um, LGBT people and trans people are disproportionately, well, LGBT uh, young people and trans people particularly are disproportionately homeless. Um, and there are lots of things that are going on, so it constantly feels like you're under attack. And the whole world is sort of set up to tell you that you're mad and that. How you feel about yourself is is not right, and that you trying to exist in the world is is stealing from other people. Um, and and so as a result of that, a lot of people feel like they're under under attack all the time, and so as a as a result of that, um, it it really really does feel like that. So when people say no, you shouldn't be entitled to be able to go about your day to day business without being harassed by people. Or, you know, you shouldn't be allowed to go into the correct toilets, which has never been an issue until... Never been an issue in the UK until about two years ago. And trans people have been around as long as people have been around. We've been around, we've been existing in society for... for, for forever. And we've been using... We've been using public toilets forever. <laughs> and mostly people haven't noticed. Um, and it's only recently that people have said, you know, and still, statistically, you're more likely to get attacked in a toilet by a member of Girls Aloud. Um, <laughs> You know, that's, that's, that's just maths. Um, you know, and, and 
trans people have been competing in sport for, for forever. Trans people have been allowed to compete in in sport since uh, 2004. And there's... And, and so, so, well, now, tell me about the sport thing, because I know... Because, of course, one... Um, I know absolutely nothing particularly yeah. about sport except for cricket. Yes. And the trans, very few trans, the trans cricket pincer movement is not something that's <laughs> happened yet. Although I await the results with glee. Yeah. Um, but one of the arguments that seems to set Twitter alight um, is that, and I'm, sort of, I'm not quoting, but I'm, I'm using other people's arguments now, is that um, uh, below average male athletes transition and become world record breaking female athletes is that a is yes. that, that's that's an argument that is put that's, so know, that's deal with that one for yeah, me that argument's put forward quite a lot and it's not it's not it's not true um any amount of effort that they went and put into transitioning would have been better suited to them going and putting the effort into getting better at what they were doing <laughs> right um uh, because it's yeah it's not the same there's, there's like the venn diagram has massive levels of if you go and if you go and group together all of the all of the sporting ability of of women and sporting ability of men, there's a slight overlap. There's there's like a big overlap in the middle, and then there are a couple at the far end who are better. There are a couple of men at the far end who are totally out of what it would be what you'd be able to do. Basically, um, yeah, trans people have been competing in sport for fifteen, sixteen years. Have been allowed to properly compete in sport for fifteen or so years, and to a professional level. And so far, we've had uh, one over 50 cyclist who's done quite well. Um, we've had one quite rubbish MMA fighter. <laughs> um, there have been very few trans women who have, who have done anything other than be distinctly average. Um, that's, you know, and there have been loads we've, from... Anyone who's managed to, to break the, through those things. Because hormone treatment, surgery, all of the other things that go on. Um, any advantage that you would have from a higher level of testosterone is lost. Any advantage that you would have from bone density is lost because... So does that alter yeah, in, it does. Yeah, in yeah, yeah. My, the transition? Yeah, yeah. My, um, from, from taking hormones, my level of strength decreased quite rapidly. After surgery, it, there was a sudden drop off of 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 of, of strength. I, I shouldn't. I I nearly went for a really obvious joke just there. There was a sudden drop off after <laughs> surgery. Uh, sudden drop off during surgery. It was. Uh, yeah, no, there's a, there's a drop off in ability for those things. It's. I think someone described it as being. You know, it's like having a car that's the same size but with a smaller engine. <laughs> right. Is the difference? And when they talk about this, they only ever talk about trans women competing in in women's sport. They don't ever talk about trans men competing in men's sport um where off but because of various different things that they with with the way that the hormones are administered they could end up with higher testosterone levels and more den- more bone density which would suggest that trans men would have an advantage there but no one's talking about that um yeah there's there have been so many trans people competing in sport in various different things also the other, the other thing is that a lot of the trans people I know have never been particularly interested or good at sport because one of the one of the most horrific times of going through high school, <laughs> if you're trans, is yes. having to take part in PE and games. Puts you off sport and exercise for life quite a lot of the time. The people who still manage to to do that, I salute them because you know I it completely put me off doing anything exercise related whatsoever when I was at school. Um, the fact is that the neither the science nor the 
not the statistics back up that trans women are better at are able to do these things. And if you look at a sport like roller derby, which I was involved in quite a lot. Oh, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. Yes, you were. Yeah, yeah, which that was how I broke my leg. And that has, you know, that um, most roller derby teams in the World uh, Women's, the uh, World uh, Flat Track Roller Derby Association uh, also has, uh, has also always said that trans athletes are perfectly okay to compete in that. And that's a full contact sport. That's a contact sport on roller skates. That's a, Thing on it's hardcore. It's hardcore as well. Yeah, yeah. And and my team, uh, Manchester Roller Derby, has a co-ed team where it's has men and women competing on it because it's not necessarily about the size of you. And it's you know when you talk about that and go oh, well, men are men are always bigger than women, and it's like well no they're not, uh, and and men are always right. It's like well again no they're not. On on our co-ed team, we had a little a little jammer who they need to be small and they need to be fast called uh, Jim Jams, and. Um, <laughs> And he was about he was about uh, five foot two, and and about eight and a half stone, and little tiny guy who was just able to zip about all over the place. And one of our best blockers for both in in the coed team, uh, better than most of the most of the guys, is uh, a woman who was known as Psycho, who was uh, six foot three and about sixteen stone of pure muscle. And you know when you see that that height and weight disparity between the two of them, you're just like, well, yeah, that kind of makes a mockery of the whole thing. It's you know there are. Any advantage that you may have through any of these natural advantages that they talk about, natural advantages of, of, of being born male, um, are lost through. OK, and what about the fact that... Do, do we attribute the fact that uh, there is now more awareness amongst young people? Is it because advances have been made in terms of visibility? Yeah. And so it is opening the doors for people who... Are now luckier in a way that, that in a sense, than than you were, um, yeah. in that they feel. Or the counter argument to that was what? And, and do you accept that there's a possibility that um, as soon as anything be, becomes something that gives people attention, mm -hmm. that it becomes a thing that certain parents might do to make their children more? Or you, 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 that there's a, <laughs> the contagion a, model. Yeah, the, this argument that. It becomes a thing, and particularly in this day and age where being different or or being um, uh, having a victimhood status is in certain uh, ideologies a sort of a, a bonus uh, and something to be um, paraded, or is that just an invention? That's entirely an invention. That's yeah. Uh, and and the but the reason that that argument is sometimes put forward is that. Um, um, is that there's a, a high percentage of mental health problems and addiction mm -hmm. problems in people who go through transition. Yeah, yeah. Now, we would say, well, that's because that goes hand in hand with having to keep your identity a secret and, and, yeah, yeah. and, and, and all that sort of thing. And then, uh, but we'll go, well, therefore, and the, an and, and the answer isn't in getting drunk and isn't in self-harming, but it's also not in transitioning in that it's the mental health that needs dealing with, not the gender identity. Yeah, no, that's, that's again, those those are two very separate issues that are very, very interesting to talk about. Um, first of all, the contagion model. I don't think that that is the case. I don't think. Um, again, partly because the amount of time that it takes to go through most of these processes, if it is a fad, then it will have worn off by then. Um <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? All right, this is a you've really shown I've really shown a commitment to this fad for the last yeah, yeah. I've really shown a commitment <laughs> to this fad for the last thirty seven years. Um yeah, it's uh, it, yeah, it's and the idea that, you know, oh well, you know, when kids know that more kids are 
out and then they think that it's something that they can do and it's yeah but you've also got to recognize that most of the world is set up to tell you that you will be unhappy if you do this <laughs> most of the world is set up to tell you you will be unhappy you won't get a partner no one will want to have anything to do with you um even now even with it in the media even with it all over the place um a lot of people go oh yeah well you know kids don't know what they are. well all of the studies all of the all the studies that have ever been do done on this, and there's been lots of them over the last 50 or so years, have shown that um, trans kids are as secure in their gender identity as cisgender kids. And the ones that aren't, again, it's a similar similar percentage. Um, this is why I love the work that Mermaids does, because they work with gender non-conforming kids to find out if they are gender non-conforming or, or, or trans. You know, because that's the thing, you know, there are... There are kids out there who are, there are little tomboys out there who have absolutely no issue with wanting to, who, who absolutely know that they don't want, that they're not trans, who absolutely know that they are girls and, and are secure in that, but also present in a certain way. And there are little boys out there who are gender non-conforming in that way, who want to play with dolls and makeup and dresses and, and are absolutely happy and perfectly content with the fact that they are boys and are not trans in any way. And there are other kids who don't really know and could do with the space to find out. And that's a thing that I think we need to do. Uh, rather than go, no one's trans, anyone who's gender non-conforming just needs to accept their body. That's all that's going on. Because that's, that's not the case either. Um, my mental health problems when I was growing up were... Some of them are attributable to being trans, some of them are attributable to being autistic, some of them are attributable to being to having ADHD. You know, I spent a lot of my life growing up being told that I was useless and terrible for forgetting things and not doing things that I was supposed to and getting distracted and, and not finishing homework on time or starting projects and not, not doing it, over-promising and under-delivering, all of those things that happen when you've got ADHD. And I got lots of negative reinforcement about that, which made me which which damaged my self-esteem and still continues to to this day. Um, you know, there were lots of things around that which which did that. What I know is that when I um when I transitioned, my life got easier and I felt more comfortable about me. I felt I felt more confident in who I am. Um, I after I'd had surgery, that was the first time in my entire life I felt comfortable naked. Um, before that, I would get dressed under my bed clothes. And when I had to have a shower, I'd try and get in and out of the shower in as quick a time as possible. So I didn't have to spend time naked because I found my own body traumatising in, in that respect. Um, when I came out, I got beaten up and attacked quite a lot and was left beaten unconscious a number of times um, in homophobic attacks. So the other idea that people go, oh, well, people just want to be trans because it's easier than being gay. You know, what? What? Who on the planet genuinely believes that that is the case? That is not the case at all. Um, you know, all of these things that sort of happened when I was when I was going through that, and and I came out and I transitioned, and because of that, I was able to cope with being me, and that made my life so much easier in that respect. Um, the mental health problems that I continue to suffer with, a lot of them are down to being autistic a lot of them are down to my ADHD there's a fair chunk of it that's down to being trans but it's not down to me being trans it's down to other people's reactions to me being trans that's where I have the issue that's where I get scared because I have had people in the street be talking to me and suddenly realize that I'm trans halfway through the conversation and feel like I've lied to them by not saying that when I first met them and then attacking me um these things have happened, so as a result of that, I'm hyper-vigilant. I don't like going out, I don't like talking to people. And these things, you could say, oh yeah, well, you know, 
these, these mental health problems are because I'm trans. They're not because I'm trans. These mental health problems are because other people can't deal with me being trans. Um, that's what's going to cause... That's, that's what causes the problems there. I think that's... It's easy to separate out what men... It's easy when you have self-reflection, which I do, and when you spend time looking at why you think the way that you do to recognise where these things are. And people have always tried to gaslight me. They go, have you not just considered that maybe you might like to do this? Like, as if I hadn't thought of that. I've spent my entire life thinking, maybe I'm just gay. Maybe I'm not really trans. Maybe all of these things. Maybe if I did this, then I wouldn't feel like this. And I've tried all of those things. And and none of them work. And I, I like who I am. I like who I am now. I don't... Um, Yeah, I'm not, I don't hate myself for being trans. I don't hate that part of me. I don't hate any of those things about me. I like me. I'm a good person, I think. I try my best. Everyone tells themselves they're a good person, so that's not really a thing. But, I, you know, I try and make things easier for other people. I try not to, um, I try not to punch down. I try not to hurt anybody who is having a difficult time of it. I try to be understanding when people lash out because we never know what other people are doing. You know, it's like when you see... When you see somebody, when you see somebody at a cash point and the cash machine's eating their card and they go nuts and start smashing things up and kicking bikes and throwing things around, you know it's not because the cash machine's eating their card. That's just the final straw. That's, mm. you know, you you haven't seen all of the things that have led up to that. Um, I don't think I think that one of the reasons that there are a lot more kids saying that they're trans now and coming out and talking about it is is because of visibility, but I don't think it's because it's a trend. There's no such thing as rapid onset gender dysphoria. <laughs> which, yeah, which is... A, I, I, I'm prepared to say that now. There's been a couple of... That's a great line. Yeah. Well, this, this, do you know, this is an idea that a lot of people out there are pushing, that there is this thing that rapid onset gender dysphoria. This child has shown no signs of ever showing any gender variant behaviour and then suddenly have decided that they're trans. Well, do you know what? A lot of kids would be like I was, desperately trying to hide it. And it's only then much later when you look back at it and they go, oh, right, okay, yeah, yeah, so there was that and there was that, you know. You overcompensate. There's, you know, there's three things that you do when something makes you feel worthless. You either avoid dealing with it or you completely surrender to it and go, yes, I am useless, or you overcompensate. And a lot of people, when they're under great amounts of stress for something that they go, right, okay, this is the thing that I feel shame about having to talk to other people about... I'm going to overcompensate. I'm going to go in the other direction. I'm going to do this and do that. And and that is the thing that's more... That is the thing that's worse, I think, for mental health than than going... Than, than actually just sort of going, yeah, do you know what? This is this is who I am, you know? Um, yeah, the arguments that I see... The arguments that I see and the arguments that people tell me about, about why I'm not trans and why it's, you know... It's a phase and that, you know... Trying to force parents, narcissistic parents, transing their children is a phrase that I've seen used quite a lot. Mm. And again, that doesn't happen. Have you ever tried to make a teenager do something that they don't want to? <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely. <laughs> like, who are these people? How do they know? How, how, have they, how have they not spotted this? You know, kids, kids will do this. And the other thing is that any kids who do do this and go, right, okay, this isn't for me, then that's, that's okay too. And when people talk about it, they go, yeah, well, you know, you never talk about people who detransition, people who start their transition and then and then decide that they're not trans and 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 detransition and go back to how their lives were before. And it's not necessarily that they decide they're not trans, it's that they decide that as awful as things were before, a lot of the time people who I've spoken to have detransitioned 
have said, you know, that as awful as things were before to try and deal with before they transitioned, that got better when they transitioned, having to deal with the way that the world treated them was unbearable. And so that's why they detransitioned. And that tends to be, that's a big chunk of people who detransition that they never talk about or, or don't want to because they're not politically expedient. Do you feel you still get treated unbearably? Um, I do online. I do from certain people. I get quite a lot of abuse. I get a lot of people... Not sort of abuse. I mean, because... Yeah, give, give me a flavour of, of the abuse. People shout slurs at me. I get quite a lot of people... I get quite a lot of people online shouting penis at me and saying, you're a man, and um, using the wrong pronouns. And if I'm upset about something, especially if I get upset about something that's that's related to trans issues, people go, oh, calm down, fella. It's all right. And, and do stuff like that. Um, that happens quite a lot. Um... Is is it can? But you know, and people get quite violently threatening out in in the real world over it as well. Really? Yeah, yeah. I've had still, yeah, like I said, still to this day. Yeah, yeah, if, yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, whenever I and the other thing is, whenever I comment about this, because this is this will go out, and what will happen is I'll get like half a dozen, maybe even more than that. I may I may get a couple of hundred even people who've listened to this who will get in touch with me, telling me that um that they're fed up with me being. That they've decided to send me a message because I'm uh, playing narcissistic identity politics here, and trying to do down other people, and that, uh, and that I'm the problem. I'm I'm what's wrong with everything in the, on the left, and that I'm the problem. Of what's wrong with everything in in society today? Because that's that's what people do. Well, and I've to be fair, it's, it's been me asking the questions actually. So it's that's my fault. So send me the abuse for that if you want to, <laughs> listener. Well, you know, yeah, I do. I I get I get abuse for that, and you know, mostly I ignore it, and because you know, people just want to be heard. People... But are the stupid people on your side of the argument as well? Yeah, I think there are some stupid people on my side of the argument, and um, I think because because well, you know it's that George Carlin line, isn't it? Think of how stupid the average person is and remember that 50% of them are stupider than that. <laughs> That's what you've got to remember. Does that make um, your life difficult sometimes when you see somebody espousing your point of view but in a way that actually doesn't persuade people but actually winds them up? Or or do you feel you ha- your side of the argument has a right to actually stick two fingers up to the other side because you feel that the other side of the argument is being put so offensively? I think both view? I think both ways. I th- but also the other thing is I think there's a really good test to whether or not you're the baddie in an argument is to think if your side suddenly stopped, uh, would the other side carry on with what they're doing? If your, if your side suddenly didn't exist, would the other side carry on doing what you're doing? You know, if trans people didn't exist, would all of the people who were shouting hate at us still carry on with what they're doing? Would they still, you know... And the answer is, you know, if they stopped being horrible to all... You know, if, if the people on that side of the argument who keep going, you're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do that, what would be the net result of them just stopping doing that altogether? And the net result of that would be trans people getting on with their lives. An interesting side of what's changed, though, since we were younger, I know I'm older than you, mm. um, um, is, is left and right was quite easily delineated. Yeah. But now because society has progressed more, mm. uh, I mean, you know, gay marriage was not even in view when I was a, yeah. as, as, as a, was a teenager. And a lot of those battles that were fought have been won by the yeah. liberals and by the left, I think is yeah. fair to say, um, is that now we have fragmentation of the liberal point of view. So, for example, the, one of the big enemies of the trans movement, it seems to me, uh, are, are 
is is radical feminism. That's been around since the that's been around since the sixties. That. But isn't that an interesting thing that you've got two sort of in the same way that um, people who've have been uh, 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 persecuted for being a, a, an ethnic minority or a religious minority. Um, and I'm thinking about the uh, the Islamic parents now outside school. So the more liberal the society gets trying to say, well, everybody should live together in harmony. It's actually now not everybody's punching down. Now a lot of people are sort of punching across. Well, yeah, some people are. But it's, it's not, I don't, it, you know, it's, it's that's why, you know, that term intersectionality comes into it. Because, you know, um, there are certain there are certain things that are considered within society to be norms and you can deviate from the norm in one respect but not deviate from the norm in another respect and so when you when you deviate from the norm in one respect it doesn't mean that you know you're necessarily you know punching down because you're punching a group of other people who deviate from the norm in another respect do you know what i mean it's um yeah it's do you know i a lot of this stuff has happened over time i think partly art all art is political is a point that i've always tried to make and the reason why I'm saying that is because that's kind of how culture works. My degree, in the end, I did a degree in cultural studies because I thought, you know what, I might as well do a degree that's incredibly easy that will allow me to be a stand-up comedian uh, whilst claiming my student loan. However, it turns out I learned a lot more than I bargained for when I did it. And uh, unfortunately, it's be- it's become very, very useful over the last 10 years since the financial crash of watching what's been going on in the world. Because we've reached this point right now where um, the right has all of the political power. And the left has all of the cultural power. And so as a result, there's this friction that's going on between the right and the left. Because the people of the left with all the cultural power think that they should have all the political power. And the people of the right with all the political power think that they should have all of the cultural power. And, and they don't like the way that it rubs up against each other. Because the right tends to be more in favour of social order, whereas the left tends to be in favour of social justice. And so as a result of that, that's why people on the right call people on the left social justice warriors. Which is... A really bizarre thing to use as an insult because it sounds f***ing cool. <laughs> and so as a result of that, what you what you end up with is, is this... What you end up with is, is this fracturing of society because, uh, in, in terms of that. But again, you find people that have links across the board because the a lot of the people who, with anti-trans rhetoric, a lot of the people who are doing that, um, who go, go and pushing that on social media and pushing that out in the world in general have really strong links to the far right. Um, a lot of the language that they use is language that starts with the far right. A lot of the language that they use, it, a lot of the things that they use, like, um, for example, the um, gender ide- ideology is a phrase that's used quite a lot. And the first use of that was within uh, a right-wing fundamentalist Christian uh, group arguing against trans issues in the US. And, and it was through them that it then went and spread to these supposedly left-wing people in the UK and that's kind of how dissemination of ideas happens it's all part of the fact that we've we've reached this point now where we've gone back from having a, a shared national narrative that was only ever a blip in our history we had a shared national narrative from the moment that they invented radio and radio became a thing that people had in their homes every, everywhere right the way through to um, about 10 years ago when YouTube started and social media started, that was the point when we stopped having that shared narrative. Because everyone watched the news, everyone had a television, everyone watched television at the same time. But before that, people never used to do that. And now people don't do that anymore. And we're going back to that time, only now we've got more ways of communicating with everybody. So what's happening is that people are finding that things that they like and they dislike, they're able to find more people who agree with them 
in, in certain ways. But it's also meaning that traditional types of social order are starting to break down because people who you know would have been called minorities or marginalised groups are now able to go and meet up with, with marginalised groups and other marginalised groups and get together and go, well, actually, do you know what? We're quite a substantial group of people here who, who all think this. And well, isn't that the argument, though, that you're, in fact, a, a, rather than being a persecuted mi- minority, you because of the social media bubble, you have immense power. There is, a, there is enough force from, in inverted commas, um, persecuted people that would suggest, therefore, that it's, you, your, your, your position is not as weak as... It's not as weak as it was. I got fired from six jobs for being trans. In Did you? Between, yeah, between 2000 and, and, and the Equality Act coming in in 2005. And what um, were the and... grounds for the sackings? Because uh, for some of them that uh, I, I scared other people that I worked with. Were they oh, allowed to do that? Yes, they were. They were totally allowed to do that before the Equality Act came in against that sort of thing. They could, uh, they could technically have fired me for uh, lying on my application because it was before the Gender Recognition Act came in. So for putting female on the form, I could have been fired for that. That was, you know, there were so many different things. And, and several of them, they just went, actually, do you know what we do? And various of the jobs that I've lost for that. It's not like I've suddenly, it's not like I did all of this and suddenly got loads of power. It's not like, because that, that was the other thing. People, oh, freedom of speech, which, you know, that's not what you're asking for. What you're wanting when you're saying that, when you're complaining about having your freedom of speech curtailed, is your freedom of consequence free speech. <laughs> That's what you want. Consequence-free speech. I want to be able to say whatever I like, and if anyone tells me off for it, then they're, then they're the ones who are out of order. And do you know what? That's, that's the thing. It's, you know, when, when it isn't equal sides when you're being abused. When somebody's, somebody's being abusive to you, and then you've got to appear on the other side of that. It's, it's not the same thing. That's, that kind of both sidesism is why you get people on the news now, which seems bizarre to me that, like, in ten years we've gone from going, well, that was a... Why on earth would you go and put a, a racist up next to someone who's been a victim of racism and get them to discuss which one's right because in, in the name of balance? Because that's... But, but, but wasn't, wasn't there the one where there was the guy who'd landed on the moon and somebody didn't believe the moon existed? Yeah, yeah. That was done, my favourite. Yeah, they've done those and you go, like, what? How? Yeah, it's just... Yeah, and it's, it's ridiculous. And, and I think that's, that's where it is. It's, it's that thing of... You know, Although I have to say, I have seen in light of some of these recent arguments a, 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 a few of the... You know the vociferous, and again I use inverted commas, but I'll use the parlance du jour. Social justice warriors saying Doctor Who fandom needs to be wrestled from old bald white guys, and I have to say I feel a little bit sad. <laughs> sad by that. Hang on, what what have I done wrong? Because I'm all of those things. Yeah, you gatekeeper. Yeah. No, um, it's not no. my fault. Yeah, do you know what? Those Leave me alone. Are, yeah, those things are ridiculous. It's you know, it's yeah. It... Do you know what I um I. Yeah, I love Doctor Who. I love Doctor Who and I love all of those things. And the thing that always gets me is when people who are, in, who are comp- completely in favour of social order, these social order warriors out there, <laughs> who go, I am absolutely sick, and de- sick to death of Doctor Who going and pushing its social justice warrior thing. It was never like this in the old days. What, like in the old days when, when the youngest woman producer at the BBC went and worked with... with with a, a gay director to do the, you know, an unearthly child. Like, a, a gay Indian director, you know, a gay Asian director to go and do that. 
you know, and you go, it's right from its inception, it's been there, and it's about going out there, and as you said in, in Lost Like My Doctor Who Scarf, it's about Which, the... by the way, Bethany was, drove me to most of my venues yeah, uh, on tour, that. yeah, that was... That was, was great. That was it? where we talked a lot about Doctor Who. You yeah. didn't mention that when you were interviewed by Doctor Who magazine. I've never forgiven you for that. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, it's all right. <laughs> think, do you know, I think I might have done. It was, if anyone, blame Benjamin Cook. Benjamin, oh. I know you're listening right now. That's your fault. It's Toby Erasure. That's what yeah, it is. That's what this it is. is what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you know what? It's People get angry. I mean, that's one of the good things about fandom and one of the bad things about fandom. And it's that weird thing that you realise when you get fans is that when you're growing up, you always think that your fans... If, you get, if you're like me and you want to go off and do something that will end up with, with you getting fans, you always kind of want them to be the people who ignored you at school, and they're not. Your fans tend to be the people who feel exactly like you did at school, and that's lovely in a way, but also it can also become, it can also become a bit toxic because they want you to be the best version of them. Well, you're but I'd forgotten about it. You're bold, and you're so bolder than I am. You you are not backwardsly coming forward. If somebody says something stupid, I you know I sort of nod and go, "Thank you very much." Yeah, yeah, somebody, I, somebody says something stupid to you, you, you yeah. do go, "That's a bit stupid." Yeah, I do. I yeah. I do you know what I'm? Yeah, it's because it's one of the things that I love about social media, but also one of the things I hate about the amount of times when people when you say something that's an obvious joke and somebody just tries to explain it back to you yeah. is one of my is is one of my big bugbears and the the thing cuz yeah and the other thing is i you know i am uh, in the parlance of the day incredibly woke however i all however i also have i'm not humorless with it and i think that's that's where the issue lies i think that's where the problem can be it's it's being unforgiving i think is is the is the problem there are things that you can forgive and there are things that you can't forgive and it's about recognizing where the boundaries are and not being absolutely humorless about it it was like i remember oh, saying before about you know when people are trying to defend you or whatever i remember seeing somebody who i'd worked with or hearing somebody that who i'd worked with on the jeremy vine show on radio 2 being asked about um when Manchester University went to having uh, gender-neutral toilets, and they and someone said, and Jeremy Vine said, "What do you say to the charge that this is political correctness gone mad?" And they said, "Well, I think that politically correct political correctness gone mad is an incredibly ableist term about people with mental health issues. So I don't really think you should be using that language." And I was like, "Oh, for God's sake, you shouldn't! Why are you trying to defend me? You're just making things worse." Um, and I think that that's a thing that, that, that can sneak in. And, and I find it irritating. So, um, and I, I don't suffer fools. I, uh, so I will regularly... Uh, last, last week I was having a bad week and I said, I'm going to cheer myself. I said, this week's been so bad that I'm considering trying to cheer myself up by watching Chernobyl. And I had about two dozen people go, actually, I don't think that Chernobyl's a very cheerful programme to be watching. <laughs> and you go, what? <laughs> How... I, I, I think you might have missed the joke there. How, how do we account for this? I mean, it, it happens to all comedians yeah. where you'd think they're following you because you think they think you're funny and then you do something that is an obvious joke where the, the joke is in the contradiction of the sentence yes. and then they point out the contradiction to yes. you. Yes. Wh- who are... How... What? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if they think that you haven't noticed that. <laughs> and that they think they're being super clever. And that they're going away going... And that as a well, comedian... Well, I bested them. And that as a comedian, everything you say is at face value. And yeah. there is no nuance or double meaning or subtext. Yeah. And, and then the other side of that, which is, of course, when you do say something 
serious about something horrific that's happened, as I've had to on a bunch of occasions, and people reply laughing and think that it's hilarious when I talk about the death of someone close to me or something lovely. Lol. Oh, yeah, yeah, and they yeah. go, oh, God, what are you like? I'm like, no, no, genuine, that was a genuine thing that I just said. Um, yeah, I think, I think partly what it is is that social media robs us of tone of voice, and we need to figure out a way to get back to being able to to get that across. Because my mum doesn't understand tone of voice in text at all. I'm regularly receive text messages off my mum at like two o'clock in the morning that'll say we need to talk which um devoid of anything else just has made me sit up panicking that she's about to dump me on occasion (laughs) (laughs) last thing you expect from your mother and then when i spoke when i speak to her she said um oh no i just wanted to chat and that's that was all i just thought oh yeah we need to have a we need to have a chat like well you could have put that down rather than we need to talk because you know, it's uh, semiotics, isn't it? It's uh, the free flow of signs and signifiers. And the way that we encode messages is not always how people decode them. And that's why, you know, it's one of the great things about humans. And it's why so many people get so many different things from Doctor Who. I think that's why people who are right-wing, who like the idea of, like the idea of social order, can manage to watch Doctor Who and go, yes, this is a show about a man who goes around the world, goes around the universe, putting the world to rights. Fights evil, yeah. yeah, yeah. Fights, a... fights, the e- fights evil forces of anarchy that want to undermine the social order. And, and, you know, you can get... People can get opposite meanings from things. And, yeah, and I do love that. And I do, I do love it when... I do occasionally find it hilarious when people do that. I've, I find it less hilarious when people go and just repeat my joke back ever so slightly. Or oh, my, personal, my personal least favourite is when people go... You should have said this instead, um, usually replacing a very common cultural reference with a really obscure cultural reference that only really means something to them. And you go, oh, right, yeah, sorry, didn't realise I was only writing it for you. Well, this has been a big one, and uh, I'm, I'm, I might break convention and actually stick it all out as one. Sorry, I've taken up so much of your time. So I'm going to ask you the final two questions, if you've yeah, got sure. time. Um, well, I'm going to do three. Are you happy now? Yes. Good. Um, <laughs> I'm very happy now. Good. I've, I've got a great life. I don't really have to go out other than to go on stage and make people laugh. I, uh, I'm, I earn a good living doing what I enjoy. And, um, and I've got projects to look forward to. And I'm enjoying what I do now. And I think that's a secret to happiness, isn't it? Enjoy what you do and, and have something to look forward and to. And you mentioned your mum. And you know, when yeah. we first started talking about... Um, Trans, you said yeah. you got drunk and told her, and then had to say you'd made up. Your mum's cool. My mum's great. I love my mum. Me and my mum are best friends. We talk to each other every day. Like I'm one of those really awful people who is really actually best friends with their mum. We talk to each other every day. We. Uh... So you had nothing? Did you had nothing to worry about then? Turns out, no. She was just really upset and and just needed to get over it. And then she spent four years after that worrying about me until I came out again. Um, at which point her response was um, when I came out. She said, "Well, we just had a conservatory built." and and when I asked her later she said you know you may always make me sound stupid when you say that but what I meant was that the only thing that I knew about trans issues was that people would reject you and hate you and I was worried that if that did happen that we'd have to move from I just gone and spent all this money on on a conservatory that we were probably going to have to go and move away from actually the biggest danger with a conservatory though is you're such a clutch clutch, you'd have probably walked through a plate glass window (laughs) (laughs) absolutely absolutely okay Beth what's your charity Uh, my charity uh, unsurprisingly at this point is Mermaids uh, which is a a charity for uh, young uh, trans people and gender non-conforming people because they helped me when I was when I was growing up they were someone who I could talk to when I was a teenager and 
was able to sort of just knowing that they were there really really helped and they are almost constantly under attack from the press and from various other people and they do lots of work to help kids who are trans and they do lots of help work to help kids who are not trans to figure out whether to 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 figure out where they fall on that sort of spectrum so that's i think that's that's a really noble and fantastic charity that i think really needs more support and uh, the final question that i ask everybody is what's your message to the doctor who fans out there so just oh, carry on carry on being you because you are like you're so much fun to talk to i love meeting doctor who fans i love talking to the doctor who fans um i don't really love meeting and talking to anybody really but at least with doctor who fans i know where i am because a lot of doctor who fans are very much like me um we're not good on small talk but great to sort of get down to the real detail the fine details of things um i love the doctor who fandom mostly there are some people out there who i could take a leave um but yeah there's nothing I can say that will change any any aspect of what it is that they will say or do because they just they love this story. They love the ongoing story of, of going out there into the world, meeting people, trying to understand them and not trying to not trying to uh, not necessarily trying to destroy them, but trying to get them to do the right thing and save the day. Well, and it's a story that you are now a part of and as a friend of yours for 20 years, I'm very proud of that association. Bethany Black, thank you very much indeed. My thanks to Beth, whose charity is Mermaids. That's mermaidsuk.org.uk. Mermaidsuk.org.uk. There's a donate button there if you would like to do that. Remember that nobody gets paid for this podcast, so every interview you listen to has a charitable endeavour behind it. And perhaps a reminder to go back to listen to some of uh, the previous Who's Rounds, including, I think, number 55, which Terence Dix was on, Terence Dix, who sadly died uh, last month. Uh, Keep supporting this podcast. My Twitter is at Toby Haydock, and I'll see you on the next edition. Thanks for listening. Ta-ta. My name is Tony Peterson, and I'm... <coughs> Sorry, Tony. <laughs> Would you mind awfully if I did the trailer this time? It's just, well, it's always the same thing. My name is Tony Peterson, private detective. We specialize in the, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, okay, fine. You go ahead. You try it. <laughs> okay. Okay. My name is Cassandra Collins. Well, I used to be called Angelique Bouchard, but I had to change my name so that I could marry into the Collins family again. It, it's a long story. Yeah, I still can't believe they fell for all that. Different name and a wig and suddenly... Do you mind? Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. I'm a witch, but a good one, I promise. Tony here's a private detective and a former victim of mine. A while ago, he completely forgave me for a tiny, minor, minuscule intrusion I'd made into his life. <laughs> and now... He helps me out, solving cases involving the supernatural. His name is on the door, but we know who really runs things around here. Yeah, I I can't argue with that. So, why not join us for Series 3 of the Cassandra Mysteries with guest star Tony Peterson, the witch and her assistant. When they get together, it's magic. (laughs) Oh, you're unbelievable.